All right, well, we're going to look at a prayer today, because at Turkey Time, we're, pre- we're currently preaching through the letter of James, and toward the end of that letter, he makes this statement, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And the compiler of the Chronicles records for us an excellent prayer in chapter 14. And so my hope is today that you will allow this prayer to influence your praying. It doesn't have to become one of your favorite prayers, but I just hope that out of what we have here today, this prayer will influence your praying. It's what it did to me. Um, Like I say, we were studying in James, but in my daily reading, I was moving through Chronicles, and I came across this prayer, and it just struck me and kind of sat with me for quite a while. And so I wanted to think more about it, and the end result of that was a sermon. So first, we've got to make sure that we know where we are in the story in God's story here. Uh, first, God has called a man, Abram, to leave his country. I'm gonna start, we're going to start way back. Not quite at the very beginning, but we're going to start with Abram coming out of his country into a land, Canaan, and God uh, promises him two things. What are they? Many descendants and a land, Right? Many descendants and the land as far as he can see it. Um, the crazy thing about it is, is um, Abram doesn't even have a child yet. But God takes care of that. And so he gives him the son of promise through a, a miracle again. Abram and his, Abraham and his wife can't have any children. They're in their old age and yet God gives them a son, Isaac. And then God rep- repeats to Abraham's son, Isaac, and his grandson, Jacob, this promise that he will multiply Abraham's descendants and give them the land of Canaan. God keeps that promise. He brings the sons of Israel to Egypt. And uh, in, the men's, in the pastor's uh, workshop, we were working through the book of Exodus. We were learning principles for studying a narrative in the Old Testament. And that, of course, describes how then God led them out of Egypt by great wonders and through his servant Moses. Then he brought him into the land of Canaan through a savior type, Joshua, right? And then established them in the land. Joshua brings them in, and for a little while, they are kind of locally ruled by judges. And then uh, Samuel is the one who God uses to bring in the first king, Saul, who is an antitype of the true king. Saul doesn't cut it. In fact, Saul could never really be the true king of Israel anyway. Why? Do you remember? Yeah, he's not from the line of Judah, is he? He's a Benjamite. So he can't, he can't even be the true king. But God raises him up to show the people that's not what you want. This is not the kind of king. I'm going to give you the right king, and that one's going to be David. And so David and Solomon come, and they each typify the true king. David typifies the warrior king, and Solomon typifies the king of peace. In David's time, it's mostly about battles. David is fighting the enemies, a lot of them ones that were supposed to have been wiped out a long time ago, and the Israelites just slacked off when they got into the land. But David's fighting those. He is a type of the fighting king who fights for his people, saves his people. And then um, Solomon, when he comes in, there's this great peace. Solomon's kingdom is, 
is uh, extensive, it is wealthy, it is full of wisdom, it is very much a type of that eternal glory when it's going to be peace. Solomon wasn't fighting wars, and, and, and he was just um, worshiping God and bringing the worship of God in. Of course, toward the end of Solomon's life, he doesn't end all, all that well, right? He begins to intermarry with uh, wives and provide for them an opportunity to worship their own gods, and that begins to bring in this idolatry that God has warned his people against. And then um, Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam comes into power, and Rehoboam is um, not the son who heeded the wisdom of Solomon that's given us in the Proverbs. He is not that son. He is a fool. He is a fool. And so Rehoboam, the people come to Rehoboam and they say to him, listen, Solomon was pretty tough on us. He made us work really hard. If you'll ease off, we'll love you as king. And uh, so Rehoboam goes to the older men and they say to him, that's good, that's sound, that's good, you ought to do that. But then he goes to his peers, the younger men. They're like, no, no, no. Hey, listen, tell the people, you think my dad was tough? I'm going to be even tougher. And so he does that. And ten of the tribes split. Now, this has already been prophesied to Jeroboam, that Jeroboam was going to become king of ten of the tribes. And so ten of the tribes go off, uh, if you will. They don't leave, but they, they no longer are going to be under the rule of Rehoboam. So the kingdom's divided between what's called Judah, that is the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, in the south, and then Israel, which are the remaining ten tribes in the north. Rehoboam rules for 17 years and he continues this worshiping of the idols. And then uh, his son um, Abijah comes in and he rules for three years. And when he dies, his son Asa rules. So Rehoboam and Abijah, both not good kings, uh, not following God. They encourage this worship of idols. They build these high places in the various uh, cities and villages and towns and so forth. And um, so when Asa comes, he, he comes into rule. This is kind of the situation that we're at in chapter 14. All right. So this divided kingdom is still fresh. Solomon's only been dead for 20 years. So just place that in here. Get us in here, right? He's only been dead for about 20 years. And the whole division is fairly new still in this. And yet Judah is full of idol worship because Rehoboam did so much evil in the sight of the Lord. It says here that he built uh, for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there was also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In other words, when Rehoboam took over, he just assimilated all these other people that God had said, drive them out because you're supposed to be different than them. And Abijah, and Abijah it says, walked in the, all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord as God as the heart of his father David. But a new king is on the throne now. And the chronicler describes him this way in Second Chronicles 14.2. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram and commanded Judah to seek 
the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and commandments. He also took out all the cities of Judah, the high places, and incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. So here we have a good king who's trusting in God and encouraging the people to do so. But he's going to be severely tested in that. We're told in verse 1 that Asa had, there was 10 years of peace during his reign. So there's no armies uh, fighting against him. And Asa is able to do this work of, of cleaning out all of this idolatry and building up fortified cities for the, for the protection. And it's interesting how he, how he refers to it. If you look in uh, verse 7, uh, Asa says, let us build these cities and surround them with walls uh, and towers and gates and bars, for the land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us peace on every side. So he understands what's going on. Because we're purging out this idolatry, God is blessing us and he's giving us peace. And so therefore we need to continue with this. And so um, he prepares um, by, by building these towers, making them strong, making these cities strong. And he even raises up an army, 300,000 from Judah and 280,000 from Benjamin. And these are mighty men of valor. Think about that. 580,000 men prepared to, to fight if they need to. That, that's a big army. And, it, and it's interesting because it tells us they're not just soldiers, but they are mighty men of valor. These are the top-of-the-line kind of guys, the kind of guys you want out there fighting for you. So let's stop a moment and just reflect on this. Think about how Asa might envision himself. He's done what's right, and God has blessed him. And now he's built up this big army. And what's going to be the temptation in Asa's life? It's going to be the temptation that took down Nebuchadnezzar when he walked out on top of the palace and looked out and said, look at mighty Babylon that I have made. And so God is going to give uh, Asa a test. Listen, Asa's followed two wicked kings, and he's done what's right, and God has blessed him, and now God is going to bring him a test. Now, we have a tendency to think of tests in the negative, Right? Who likes tests? Anybody like tests? Yeah, most people don't like tests. I, I don't at one level. And yet at one level I do because I understand what tests really are. They are the opportunity to prove what's true. That's really what a test is. It's the opportunity to prove what's true. We tend to think of it as the opportunity to try and get a good grade. But that often means pretending we know things we don't really know and hoping the teacher doesn't realize that. But... When God brings a test, he's not bringing a test because he's going to try and mess with Asa or he wants Asa to fail or he wants to just show how much better and smarter he is than Asa. He's bringing a test because he's going to prove what is in Asa. He's going to prove what he has put in this king and why he is a good king. But isn't it just like the Lord to test our trust when everything's going pretty good, right? <laughs> we just think like, okay, now I can relax. And as soon as that happens, the test comes. Again, God's not doing that to be mean. But he's going to show us what's inside. 
And so here's the test for Asa. It's recorded for us here in Chronicles 14.9. Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Marashah. So let's start off with this. Let's reflect on this a moment. This army is twice the size of Asa's, right? Asa's got 580,000 men. Here come a million men out of Ethiopia. And they have 300 chariots. It doesn't tell us that, that the Israelites have chariots, and they may not have. That may be part of the point here. And chariots, uh, chariots were a great benefit in, uh, in war in those days. Let me just read to you from the Encyclopedia Britannica what it says about chariots. In combination with the bow, the chariot represented a very effective system, so much so that in biblical times it became almost synonymous with military power. The great advantage of the chariot was its speed, which permitted it to drive circles around the phalanx, staying out of range while raining arrows on the foot soldiers. Once the latter had been thrown into disorder, it might be possible to put chariots into formation, charge, and ride them down. Now, if you're in the infantry today and you see a tank on the horizon, well, you know you got a while before it's going to get to you. But chariots are not like that. They're really fast. And so when you see a chariot on the horizon, it's, it's danger. They had 300 chariots which they could use to just create this, this chaos and ride down these people. This is, a, this is an impressive army that's come. And look what it says. They've come as far as... Marisha, which I had no clue where that was, so I looked it up on a map. Marisha is about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem, which is where Esau would have been at. That's not far for an army to move in a day. In other words, they were threatening the very center of the kingdom of Judah. So think about what Asa's thoughts might be right now. <laughs> you ever been in that position? God's been blessing you. Things have been going well. And suddenly what appears to be an insurmountable danger or, or test of some kind just rises up out of nowhere. And there's, there's various kinds of responses we can have. One of the common ones is what? Right now? While everything's going so good? How could this be happening? Well, let's see what Asa thinks. I don't know all of what Asa thinks because it doesn't tell us, but I will tell you this, that his grandfather Rehoboam had a similar situation. You'd have to look back into the text earlier to see that. But Shishak, the king of Egypt, invaded Judah with, get this, 1,200 chariots and 60 horsemen, and then it says this, people without number. You thought a million was a lot. This is apparently more than that. This is his grandfather. This is within the last 20 years, probably the last 15 years. Whether Esau was alive or not, I don't know. But they came all the way up to Jerusalem. Now, Rehoboam, who didn't generally do the right thing, actually did at this point, because his response was this, the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. 
And listen to the Lord's response. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shimei, the prophet. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but I will grant some deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. And the end result of it was they gave a bunch of the gold away to Shishak, and he left and went back, went back home. We don't know. We don't know um, if that's what was on Asa's mind, but it might have been. He might have remembered his history. What we do know is that Asa did not rely on any human wisdom or power in his circumstances. Let's see what he does. He goes out to meet Zerah, and as the battle lines are drawn up, look what he does. He prays. He cries out to the Lord, and here's his prayer. O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. Let's identify a couple of helpful aspects in this prayer of Asa's. The first one is this. He prays to the right God. Remember, he's coming, out of a, he's coming out of a short history here, starting with Solomon, his great-grandfather, of, of praying to false gods. Now, Solomon himself didn't tend to do that, but he encouraged that in the kingdom. Rehoboam and his father Abijah went right into that, and they were worshiping these false gods. They were praying to these false gods for the most part. Or they may have been adding them to the worship of the true God. But he knows who to call out to. He cries out to God. He says, oh, Lord. And he acknowledges the power of the Lord and the helplessness of God's people. He's got a right perspective. He hasn't thought of himself as the one who's made all of this happen. Through obedience, God has blessed him. But Asa recognizes that all power belongs to God. Look at it. There is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Now, I think he's pretty clear on who the mighty and the weak are in, in the human perspective. It's one million men with 300 chariots are the mighty. 580 men, though they be mighty men of valor, are really the weak. And then he expresses his trust in God. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. If you know the history of the kings, and sadly, Asa, in the end of his reign, a lot of times what they would do when they were faced with a situation like this is they would go to one of the other kings out of, out of their country, out of their people, the king of Egypt maybe, or uh, the Assyrians or somebody, and they would say, come and help us. Instead of going to God and saying, God, you need, we need you to help us, they would go to a, uh, an earthly king and say, hey, come and help us. And God always chastised them for that. But here, he knows who to go to. He knows who to trust in. We rely on you. And he knows to move forward only in the power of the Lord. 
In your name, we have come against this multitude. Perhaps he maybe, maybe had thought back to his great, 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 great grandfather, David. You might remember that scene out of, uh, out of David's life when he's still a young shepherd boy. And he goes to see his brothers at the battle. And while he's there, he hears this booming voice across the valley. And this almost 10 foot tall giant is over there going, hey, send somebody out and let's just have a man-to-man battle to see who wins this war instead of all of our people fighting each other. And Saul, who's the king, who's a head taller than everybody, so he's not 10 foot, but he's pretty good height, pretty strong guy, is just like quaking in his tent. They got nobody. In fact, he tells David at one point, this, this guy over there has been killing people since he was a boy. And you're still a boy. You're still a youth, David. And you might remember, of course, David says, hey, I'll take him on. Listen, here's what happened. And, and remember, David remembers this. David doesn't say, hey, listen, I've gotten really good with a slingshot. I can take him. David says, a bear came, grabbed one of the sheep I was watching, Another time, a lion came, grabbed one of the sheep I was watching. You know what I did, Saul? I went and got them, and I grabbed them with my hands, and I ripped them apart because God helped me to do it. And then he says this, the same God that gave me the ability to kill the, the bear and the lion will help me take on this uncircumcised Philistine. He remembers that it's God. And so he goes in the name of God. You might remember again, as he goes out there, he grabs some stones, grabs a sling, it gets a sling, and then when he's chatting with Goliath, they're having this little interaction where they're kind of uh, uh, talking, you know, this, this big talk, and they're going to give each other's flesh to the birds and all of that stuff. And he says to, he says to uh, Goliath, you're coming to me with your sword, your spear, you're coming with all these, all these earthly weapons, basically. He says, but I'm coming in the name of the Lord. I'm coming in the name of the Lord. And the reason David knew that Goliath was going down was because Goliath's battle was not with David. And it was not with Israel. It was with the God that he was mocking. It was with the God whose name he was trying to erase. And David says, I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. And that's what, that's what Asa's saying here. In your name we have come against this multitude, O Lord. We're not going to try and do this in our own strength, God. It's got to be you. We're going to trust in you. We're going to trust in your name. What does it mean? What does that mean, his name? We, we pray in Jesus' name, right? We talk about the power of the name. Well, really, it has to do with the character of God. The name is closely identified with the character. If, you, if I said to somebody, hey, I know so-and-so up at uh, ABC, and they knew you and your character, there would be a response. Hopefully, it would be a good one. Oh, yeah, I know that guy. He's great. It, but what, is it, what do they know? They know your character. They know who you are. They know what you're like. The name of God is about his character which his character is holy and just. His character never changes. These are the things that he was telling Moses at the mountain when he said, I am. 
I'm just all existent. I don't need anything else or anybody else. I exist alone of myself. Everything else that exists comes out of me. And so the name of the Lord is what's going to be relied on. In other words, Asa is saying, God, I'm going to trust your character that you are good and that you are a lover of your people, and so you're going to do the right thing. You're going to do the best thing. And then he acknowledges where the real battle is. I love this last line. It's just been sitting in my mind. You are our God. Let no man prevail against you. Asa doesn't say against us or against Judah and Benjamin or against Israel or against your people. He understands that the real battle that exists and always has existed since the creation of the world has been between God and his enemies. God and his enemies. Um, Now, we often represent God in that battle. But it's why Paul can say something like this. Um, You know what? This isn't a battle of flesh and blood. It's not what we're fighting against. And so the weapons we use are not the weapons that the world uses. Now, the Old Testament is continually showing us that in these battles that Israel is having. Because the rest of the world is coming against Israel with the weapons of the world. Swords. Chariots. Killing. And uh, God is saying, saying to Israel over and over and over again, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do it that way. And, if you, and you, most of the battles that God intervenes in, it's not until after he has sent the other army to flight that Israel actually gets involved. They're just kind of mop-up crew, right? I mean, he uses things like pitchers with fire in them. He uses things like the trees making the sound of a loud, a loud army coming. He uses things like puddles of water that look like pools of blood. He he uses all kinds of things to make the armies of the world quake, and they're not the weapons that we tend to think of. Now, we don't generally go around nowadays with swords. (laughs) I mean, we're not out there fighting those kinds of battles. But the point is that the world is coming against God with all kinds of weaponry. Now when I say the world, again, I'm not just, what's behind this king, what's his name again, Zerah? Yeah, what's behind Zerah is not simply his desire for something. There are forces of darkness and evil that are trying to eradicate God's people. That has always been true from the very beginning. In fact, God said this, what it's going to look like. It's going to be two lines, godly and ungodly, and it's going to keep going all the way through time. You see it at its at two apexes at the beginning of the New Testament. We're going to celebrate Christmas in a couple months, right? Yeah, it's not that far away. And at that point, the wicked king is going to try and destroy the righteous king. And he fails. And some 33 years later... Another wicked king is going to try to destroy the righteous king. It's going to appear that he did for a moment. But see, Jesus wasn't fighting with battle, the battle with the weapons that man had. He wasn't standing up for his rights. He wasn't 
he wasn't proving his power. You remember what, what he said. Listen, when they come against me in the garden, if I want to stop all this, all i got to do is say a word. They had forgotten all those miracles where Jesus didn't even do anything. He just said something. But that wasn't the plan. The plan was to use something different, a different way of warfare. And that's what's going on here. This isn't, this isn't about Asa. It's about God. Because look at verse 12. What does it tell us? It doesn't tell us that Asa defeated the Ethiopians. This, this is another great, just a, like write this down somewhere and read it over and over for the next month. The Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah. That's not a time frame like before, like before they could get to it. It's a position. Asa's standing there with all his armies and he's watching. And as he watches... God does something, and he doesn't tell us in this particular case what it was, but in some way he causes the Ethiopian army to flee, to run. He defeats them before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And then here's the mop-up. Asa and the people pursue him. Pursue them as far as Gerar, and the Ethiopians fell until none remained Alive, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. Well, I said at the beginning that my hope is that you will allow this prayer to influence your praying. And so I just want us to think about how that might happen. I want to begin with the noting that it is the prayer of a righteous man that has great power as it is working. Now, this is some tension in this because at some point, we know that we're all unrighteous. That's our normal state. So at some point, God must listen to the prayer of an unrighteous man, woman, child, that brings them into that point of righteousness. But that's not really what, we're, what James is after. James isn't talking about sinners who now say a prayer that expresses their faith in God. He's talking to the church, and he's saying, Church, those who are God's people, live in righteousness if you really want God to respond to your prayers. That's the kind of man that God delights to respond to. Righteous people. Righteous people can have confidence. When you're living before God the way you're supposed to, Keeping yourself unstained from the world, as James would say. Doing good works that demonstrate your faith. Then when you pray, you can have confidence that God's going to work in that. And what kind of prayer might it be? Well, having situated yourself by his grace to claim access to the throne through the blood of Jesus, you can pray along the lines of Asa's prayer. And I just ask you to turn over to Matthew chapter 9. I'm sorry, 6. 6, verse 9. Sometimes I find it helpful to pray in the context of the prayer that Jesus modeled for us. Sometimes I find it helpful to pray that prayer, but I, I like to use that prayer as a framework 
And look at the framework and how it's very similar to ACES. First of all, pray to the right God. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. That's who we're talking to. We're praying to the God who is in heaven. We're praying to the God who is distant in one respect. Unlike us. Holy of holy. Unapproachable. And yet, what's that term father mean? That means he's intimate with us. He is close to us. He's not a distant father. And it holds, that very sentence holds intention. This reality. He is a God who deeply loves us as his children. Who yet is very different from us. He's not our buddy. He is our father. And that's who we're, that's who we're crying out to. That's who we're praying to. The one whose name is to be hallowed. The one whose name is to be acknowledged as holy. And look at the acknowledgement of his power and our helplessness. What do we want? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's, that's God's power. His kingdom has to come and override all of these puny kingdoms that we got represented in this room here. Because all of us have little kingdoms that we're trying to build. And those have to be crushed under the weight of God's kingdom. And so that's our helplessness is even when we build these little kingdoms, we find that they don't go anywhere, do they? We try to, we try to build up... Think about a man named Saul who's later called Paul and he's trying to build this kingdom. He thinks he's defending the God of Israel while he's going out and wiping out these people who are part of the way. And when he comes face to face with the king and his kingdom, Jesus says to him this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul, you are wasting your time trying to build up this puny little kingdom that you've got. I've got a kingdom that's much greater. And I'm going to just bring that right down upon you and Saul responds to it. And then, look, we express our trust in God. Give us this day our daily bread. So first of all, we have provision, we have needs. And God, you've got to meet those. Now, most of you probably didn't get up this morning and go out into your yard and find manna laying out there, did you? But understand that when God is providing for you in whatever way he is, it's him doing it. It may be through your skill. It may be through the grace of another. However that is, it's him doing that. And our danger is always, again, that of Nebuchadnezzar, that we, we look at what our household looks like and we go, man, look what I've done. I, uh, my wife and I joke often that if we had written a parenting book, it would have been after our first child. We would have made a whole lot of money because she was so easy. It was great. And then we had the second one. And we would have had a, had a retraction. Now, listen, we've been parenting now for 30 years almost. And I got a four-year-old. And I have no idea what to do with this kid. He is out of control and wild. And, and we're looking at each other going, we must have learned nothing over 30 years. What's going on? He's our test, I believe, or part of our test. God's saying, I want you to trust me with him. Are you going to keep doing what you know you should do 
Or are you going to go and try to find some other way to fix this? He's a pretty good kid. I'm, I, I don't want to paint a real dark picture, but I just tell you what, when you're sitting in the worship gathering and he's all the way down the hall, a good 120 feet in a, behind a closed door and you can hear him <laughs> and everybody else can hear him and they know whose kid it is. At that point, we battle embarrassment. And, um, and, and, and that's, but that's, how, that's my puny kingdom, see? I've been parenting for not just for 30 years, but I got 14 kids. I should know how to do this. People should be looking to me and go, there's the guy that knows how to parent. And my kid's screaming down in the room down there. My puny kingdom is just like the walls are crumbling like Jericho. And I have to be willing to say, okay, God, I, I, I don't know really what I'm doing, I guess. I need you to help me. I need you to help me between the mighty and the weak. All right, where are we at here? Oh, expressing your trust in God. It's not just your daily bread that you need, though, but this is other after that, right? And forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. <laughs> and, and he's not talking about money. Paul says it this way. Paul says, owe no one anything except what? Love. We, we, we default on our debts when we don't love others. That's really the chief way that we default. Is when we don't love another person when we have the opportunity to do that. And we know we should. That's our biggest default. And that's that's what we need to say. Forgive us our debts. And then we move forward in the power of the Lord. I like that. Lead us not into temptation. God, you've got to be the one to keep us from temptation. We, we're not going to tend to do that ourselves. Again, we, we get to the point that Asa could have gotten at where we're, we, we just think we've got this. We got this. We're good. And God just wants to remind us through the test, it's not really you. I'm upholding you every single moment. Every single moment. The very next breath we take, we almost never think about it. But without a word, God could withhold that and we'd be done. So everything we have all the time is from God. And so we, we, can't, we can't think to ourselves, well, I know, I know the things that tempt me, and I'm just going to have to stand against them. Because it just doesn't work. It works for a while. And that's what kind of lulls us into thinking, hey, we got this handled. But eventually, God's going to show us that we don't have it. We don't have it, and we're going to fall. So we ask him, please, don't lead us into temptation, but rather, and here's the real battle, deliver us from evil. It's not your neighbor that's after you. It's not your coworker that's after you. It's not even your government that's after you. It's not even another government that's after you. As a child of God, it is Satan who is after you. Evil is seeking every single day, every single moment to lay hold of you and ruin your life. 
and in ruining your life, ruining your testimony, and putting a blot upon the name of our great God and Savior. It's evil that we're always fighting against. And that's, again, why Paul says we're not fighting against flesh and blood, so you can't try to use those kinds of tools. So what does he say you use? What are the what are the active? We know, we, know, we know there's an armor. That's a protective. But what are the active tools, he says? The word of God. The sword of the spirit. And then he says what? And prayer. The word of God. Is it any wonder that in Acts chapter 6, the apostles say to the people who are kind of grumbling about the disbursement of, of uh, benevolent funds, listen, we've got to focus on the word and prayer. So somebody else has got to take care of that. Because they knew that the battle wasn't against Rome. It wasn't against the Jewish leaders. It wasn't even against a guy like Saul. It was really at its core against the evil powers of darkness. So are you facing a test? Maybe you're not. Maybe you're saying, yeah, life's pretty good right now. I got... 580,000 blessings. I'm not saying that God's necessarily going to bring something bad against you. But when he does bring something into your life that tests you, are you going to respond the way Asa has? Is, uh, Is wickedness uncomfortably close to the center of your being? Are you appearing to be outnumbered by your enemies, besieged on every side? Well, there's great hope. And that great hope is found in verse 12. The Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa. And this was in response to the prayer of a righteous man that had great power as it was working. So, saints at Adirondack Bible Chapel, I just want to encourage you and myself, let's pray. And let's pray like a man, Asa. The right God to pray to, the right view of who I am and who he is, expression of our trust in him, and going forth in the power of his name. Father, thank you. This uh, text is just so encouraging. I, I don't know what people are facing in this room in particular. I don't really need to know, Father. You know. What I do know is that all of us daily are facing an enemy who is stronger than us. If we were stripped of all your defense of us, our adversary would wipe us out quickly. But you're our God. You're our Savior. And you have not left us defenseless. And you've given us a powerful weapon against the enemy, against your enemy, which is prayer. Call upon you, Father, 
to cry out to you and say, help us. We can't fight this on our own. Father, would that not be just true of the individuals in this room, but would it be true of Adirondack Bible Chapel? As your chosen instrument in this area to show forth the glory of your name and to bring relief to people who are stuck on the side of the enemy and need to be freed. Would you empower this congregation to be a praying congregation? I thank you already before I get up here to preach. This was just bathed in prayer. What a blessing. And so would you encourage us not to relax in the day of battle, to hold fast to what we know is true. You are our God. You will fight for us. And you will always be the victor. This we pray in the great name of your victorious Son, our King, the Lord Jesus Christ.